Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see everybody here this morning. I got to say, um, it's been a fun uh, Easter so far. Um, you know, it's been raining, you know, not the weather we were hoping for. Uh, broken instrument, obviously not foreseen. But I got to say, as, as a pastor who loves to focus on the simplicity of this book, um, what an amazing reminder that we don't need those things to worship Jesus. Um, and if anything, sometimes those things can become distractions. And so sometimes God, I think, reminds us and forces us to, to, to strip things away, things that aren't necessarily bad in their own right, um, but sometimes we, in our own sinful fleshly desires, um, end up uh, looking forward to and liking more than the greatest story that exists, which is why we're all here today. It's why this book is is by far the most copied book in the existence of humankind. It's why um, 150 million Americans will attend uh, a church service today. It's because not of the, the music, not of the, those things are great, but those things wouldn't last thousands of years amidst persecution, amidst uh, all sorts of different oppositions and obstacles. Um, but what does is the story of Jesus. And so that's what I want to talk about with you all today. Um, I'd like to say a few things, however, before we do, uh, before we go to God's Word, as, as Pastor Brett said, this is the time of our service where we go to the Word, the only place we can go for sustenance, uh, to be filled, not in a temporary way, but an eternal one. Um, and so a few uh, just comments about Easter before we dive in. Uh, the first thing I want to point out, I want to remind us, is that the truths that we're going to be talking about, the truths of Easter, um, are true every moment of every day and will continue to be so forever. Um, we do celebrate on one day of the year, uh, intentionally and specifically, but everything we discuss is true always. And that's precisely what makes it such an amazing truth worth gathering around, is the fact that it's true always. Now that being said, it is still good for us to set aside Specific day for specific recognition and celebration. You know, we might be tempted to say things like, well, why put extra focus on Easter if Jesus' resurrection is true every day? Um, and there is some truth there. You know, if the only day we celebrate Jesus' resurrection is on Easter, then, then we're missing the total life-changing power that, that comes from the truth of the res resurrection and the implications it has on our life, our day-to-day -day life. Um, however, giving special attention one day per year of intentional set-aside focus is good too. And the Bible doesn't specifically command that, um, but we do see precedent for it throughout the Old Testament and New. And so today we take special set-apart time to emphasize the power, significance, and life-changing implications of Jesus' resurrection. And then finally, we must remember that we are not adding anything to the beauty of the resurrection story. There's nothing that we can offer. There's nothing I can say beyond what this book says about Christ raising from the grave that will give any more power to what it is in its own right. There's no way in which we could sing. There's no way in which we could gather. There's no way in which we could do anything that's going to add anything to this story. It, on its own right, is the greatest story that has ever existed. And so let's be sure not to think that we are in any way adding 
All we are doing is receiving and reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us. And so all that being said, today we celebrate the joyous wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its simplicity, yet all of its depth and complexity. Um, But first, let's turn to the Lord in a word of prayer as we go to his word. God, we love you. Um, And Lord, we thank you for your goodness displayed already today. Thank you for allowing us to gather freely without fear of of, of persecution or condemnation or judgment or anything else, but we can just freely gather here and know that your presence, the same presence that, that rose Jesus from the grave is alive in this place and freely accessible to all those who are in here, whether, whether they've followed you for, for 30 years or whether they are sitting here currently unaware of your power and what you've done for them. Um, God, it's true, and it's here. And so I pray that you would help us to feel the presence of your Holy Spirit in this place. I pray that the power of your word would transform all of us here this morning. I pray that you would um, just help us to, 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 to be free from any distractions or obstacles and to just take in your word. So Lord, we love you, we thank you, we come with expectant hearts and just simply ask that your will would be done in our life this morning through the power of your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Uh, last week, Pastor Caleb um, preached on uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, the title of his sermon was called Unmet Expectations, and he addressed some of what their expectations were for the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, to save people from uh, their sins and how they were wrong in all of their expectations. But not wrong because they expected too much, but rather wrong because they expected too little. Um, and so he helped us uh, learn how we can expect rightly from Christ, what he actually comes to offer us. And today what we're going to do is we look through John 18, we'll be in John 18, John 19, and John 20 all a little bit. Um, we're going to see the fulfillment of those expectations that are fulfilled not just 2,000 years ago, but are fulfilled every, much, every bit as much today and every day in the lives of those who choose to follow and accept it. And so, that fulfillment uh, is what cements the story of Jesus as the greatest story ever, which is the title of the message that I want to share with you all this morning, The Greatest Story Ever. Greatest story ever. That's a big claim when you really think about it because there's some great stories out there. I'm sure if you think about what your favorite story in your life is or or book, um, whether it's true fiction, nonfiction, depending on the genre, whatever level it might be, my daughter's favorite book right now is, I don't even know what it's called, but The Monkey's Jumping on the Bed. Um, Whatever that book's called, that's her favorite right now. Um, and I'm sure you've got favorites that come to your mind. Just to name a few of the amazing stories that exist. You've got the Odyssey. You've got the Great Gatsby. You've got Moby Dick. You've got Hamlet. You've got Great Expectations. Um, or you've got the classics like Harry Potter, uh, like uh, Hunger Games, like Twilight. Um, and I'm not condoning those books necessarily, um, but they're 
stories that are famous, not just amongst youth, not just amongst adults, globally um, renowned as stories that are popular or are good. Is it really safe to say that the story of Jesus, the story that Christians celebrate, the story that Christians, in many cases, lay down their lives for, uh, some to the point of death, others to the point of leaving things behind and going to places far away with fear of intense persecution, for others, fear of losing their jobs, for, for all sorts of reasons. Right? Is that story really the greatest story? And my hope, uh, well, first of all, I certainly believe so. I certainly believe so. And I hope that if you're here today that you will leave believing so as well. Not just with what we say or claim with our words, but we believe with our hearts. Because this story isn't just a happy-go-lucky story that we read a few times. It is a story that changes the very fabric of our being. It changes the, 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 the way we live. It changes the way we love. It changes the way we see the world. It's a book. It's a story that reads us every bit as much as we read it. Uh, it gives us a hope beyond the material reality that we live and act in every single day. But it does not only these things, far more. And so therefore, it's the greatest story ever, as we're going to see. And, and because of that, I want to treat it um, as the greatest story ever. And I want to look at it in its entirety. Um, because in order to value the resurrection, we've got to know the backstory. Right? The resurrection is the, the climactic chapters of our story, but again, in order to understand its significance, we must start from the beginning. And so we're going to look at uh, this story in four scenes, if you will, or four different parts, um, ending with the climactic moment that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, if you'll join me in John chapter 18, we're going to be uh, initially in verses 33 through 38. Uh, should be on the screen behind me. If not, there's Bibles in the pews next to you. I also give you permission to, to look at the person next to you. Uh, but I encourage you to flip there and actually see it in the Word in front of you. But John 18, uh, 33 through 38 is where we'll start. It says this, Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I am a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In verse 38, what is truth, said Pilate. What is truth? That's a great question for us to ponder as well. And the first truth, or the first scene of our story, is that we have been created by God. That we have been created by God. And we see hints of this truth um, as Jesus is uh, basically on pre-trial. We're going to see it kind of continue forward in the 
next chapter and, and chapter to come. Um, but he's basically on pre-trial, and we see glimpses of this truth throughout. He says that he is from a different kingdom. It's not of this world. If it was, then he wouldn't be in the situation he was in. And so what that tells us, or what that implies, is if this is not his world, this is not his kingdom, then his kingdom must exist outside of this world. Implying that, that Christ is not just one who coexists with us in, in creation as a created being, but one who exists outside of all that has been created. Scripture actually goes further, St. Colossians 1.16, not only does he exist outside of all that's been created, but he's the very cause of all the things that have been created. It says in Colossians 1.16, for everything was created by him, in heavens and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so what Jesus is saying when he's saying, this is not my kingdom, this is not, this is not his world, is because he's so far bigger than that. Right? How can you be a part of the thing that you created? Right? He exists outside. Yet simultaneously, having been born into this world for this purpose, exists within as well. What that tells us is that if, we're, if we can't say the same about ourselves, then, then we must then be a part of that which God has created, that which Jesus has created in and for himself. I want you to think about this. This is an illustration I just got from Pastor Brett just less than a week ago, or a week ago, uh, last Sunday. I want you to think about for the moment the odds of you being here this morning. And I don't mean being here, sitting here this morning, but you existing here this morning. That you, that you were born into this world, that you exist. Right? The odds that that's true. There's an author named Ali uh, Benazir, I guess, who, who attempted to calculate the odds of of somebody being alive, of, of your exact person being alive. And he really only considered four factors. Now the first factor is what are the odds of your parents meeting? Right? The second factor is what are the odds of them meeting and then being together long enough to have children? Um, and then thirdly, I'll just say the reproductive odds. Um, and then the last odd is when you take those three factors and then factor them out, not just for your parents, but your parents' parents, and their parents, and their parents, and you come all the way down to you, sitting here today existing. What are the odds that that comes out to? And the number that they come up with is 1 in 10 to the 2,685th power. Now, to put that in perspective, I was going to just have the number on the screen, but we literally... The screen's not even close to being big enough because essentially what that number is, is one with 2,685 zeros after it. That is those are the odds that you and your, your being are sitting and existing here this morning. To put that in perspective, there are 10 to the 27th atoms in the body, right? So not 2 million plus zeros, but 27 zeros. That's how many atoms your body is made up of. There are 10 to the 50th atoms in the earth, and there are 10 to the 80th atoms in existence. Like in the universe, that's how many atoms there are. So one with 80 zeros after it is how many atoms there are in the universe, yet one and two million, one with two million zeros after it, that's, how, that's the odds of you being here this morning. Or to put it another way, 
If every atom that's in the universe had its own universe contained within it and was made up of the same number of atoms, it still would not even be close to the, to the odds of you sitting here this morning. But what about this? Imagine a city with two million people in it, uh, of which you can be a part of, and each person in the city is given a dice. But it's not a six-sided die, it's a trillion-sided dice. And then all two million people roll the dice at the same time. If they all landed on the exact same number, the odds of that happening are the same odds of you being here this morning. Last one. <laughs> Imagine there was a life preserver thrown somewhere in some ocean, randomly, and there was exactly one sea turtle in all of these oceans, swimming underwater somewhere. The probability that the sea turtle came up out of the water in the exact place that the life preserver was sitting are the same odds, or roughly the same odds, of you being here this morning. Now, I go through all that trouble and illustrations, even though it's an illustration I borrowed from Pastor Brett, to simply say that the fact that you have been created and are here, it's, there, there really aren't any odds, is the point I'm trying to make. It is impossible, literally impossible, without divine intervention or divine being creating you. Otherwise, it is literally and totally impossible. And here's the thing. That's just half of the equation, because it'd be one thing if we were created, but our life had no value. Right? Not only did God create us, but he also gave our life intrinsic value, meaning and purpose. I heard an illustration not long ago where a guy went up to somebody and said, hey, um, would you want $10 million? Right? And the guy said, absolutely. I would love to have $10 million. He's like, you know what? Let's make it $100 million. Would you love to have $100 million? He's like, yeah. He's like, what would you do for $100 million? The guy said, I would do anything for $100 million. Are you serious? And he said, okay. I'll give you $100 million, but in receiving it, you won't wake up tomorrow morning. He said, would you still want the $100 million? He's like, well, no. Right? Not if I'm going to be alive. The point the guy makes is, so what you're telling me is that your life is more valuable to you than $100 million. Right? And I imagine if we factor that out in our own life, there's no value. Right? There's no value high enough that equates to the value God has put in our life. So he gave us life, and he made that life valuable. Right? To live for him, to know him, to serve Him, to love Him, to be in unity with Him is how God created each one of us. And that's the first part of the story. Like any author writing a story, he's got to create it first. right? In order, he's got to create the characters and the things, and otherwise it's, it, there's nothing. Right? So the first part of the story is we've been created by God. Now if you jump down just to the, the next verses, continuing on in verse 18, John 18, second half of verse 38. It says, after he had said this, again, he's kind of on pre-trial trial. It says, he went out to the Jews, this is Pilate, and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, Jesus? They shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a revolutionary other Gospels give us more information on that story and tell us that Barabbas was a murderer. 
Um, and basically, according to Jewish custom, is during Passover, they would uh, release one prisoner free as a, as a sign or symbol of, of grace. Um, and so here, Pilate, in trying to get out, recognizing that Jesus had done no wrong, but gives them two options. Jesus, the one who had done no wrong amongst all potential criminals or, or criminals, and Barabbas, who wasn't just a criminal, but, but the worst of criminals, thinking that, of course, they'll allow for Jesus to be released, but the people don't. They cry out for Barabbas to be released instead. So Jesus, again, further along in his trial, leads us to scene two of our story. First, we see that we've been created by God. Now we see that we've been separated from God. We've been separated from God. Who is Barabbas? Again, not just a revolutionary, not just a murderer, not just a prisoner who, who deserved to be crucified. He is symbolic of you and I. In this story, and oftentimes in Scripture, we can insert ourselves into the story, and what we like to do is insert ourselves into the, the shoes of the good guys. You know, like in David and Goliath, you know, we like to say, well, we're David, right? We're going to defeat things. In that story, we're not David at all. We're the, we're the scared Israelites who have no power or ability to save ourselves from an enemy with whom God then intervenes and saves. Right? And in this story, we're, not the, good, we're, the, we're the worst character in this story. And Barabbas, and the reason it's included in the Gospels here is to, to remind us and show us of that. And, and what that means and what that's, what that's done is, again, because all we've seen in the story so far is we've been created by God to be in perfect unity with God, to experience the love of God, to serve God, to work for God, to enjoy God's creation with no evil, no, no bad, nothing, just perfect unity with the, the creator of the universe. That's all we've seen in our story so far, which sounds pretty good. And then when we see Barabbas here, essentially what we've done is we fast-forwarded through time and what's happened in that time, in the story, is that all people have rebelled and sinned against God. All people. And again, we might have a hard time saying, how am I Barabbas in the story when I'm not a murderer? But all our sin leads to the same place. Romans 3 says it this way in verses 10 through 18. It says, there's no one righteous. Did you hear that this morning, church? We went from greatest story, start to a story possible, the best start possible. For those of you that watched the Masters the last few days, it's like you start birdie, eagle, birdie, right? It's a perfect start. And then we go from there to literally the worst case scenario we could possibly be in. Not only have we done a bad thing or two, but our lives are totally consumed by all that is bad. It's what it's, there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All like have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Just to be clear, those aren't my words. Those are the Bible's words. Right? That we have all done that. None are exempt. Right? If you're here, it doesn't matter how long you've existed. It doesn't matter uh, how long you've known Jesus, not known Jesus, whether you're a Christian or not. If you're in here as an atheist, just with, with family, regardless of your situation, this truth is true for all of us. All people have done bad, but not just to a small degree, to an infinite one. And so our story takes a pretty hard turn. Literally the hardest turn it could possibly take. Because on top of that, we have no ability to do anything about it on our own. There's nothing we can do. And if this sounds harsh, like a harsh consequence, let me just put it in perspective for you. Right? We, we enjoy justice as people, right? When someone does a wrong, if that wrong doesn't go punished, then we, then we get upset about it, right? We want to live in a place where justice is, is served. I don't even mean that in a bad way, just that you can't just go around doing wrong things, right? There's got to be consequences, right? And we see wrong things happen to the degree that they're wrong is how upset we get when nothing happens, Right? Like if one of you are in here and you, you, know, you snag a box of tissues when you leave, right? that's probably not a good thing, but you're not going to jail for that. However, if you start getting into to deep sins, it even seems silly to say that because all sins are separation from God, but, but tissue box murder, like Barabbas. Right? We might let tissue box go, but are we let murder go? Absolutely not. And here's the thing, all consequences that we're familiar with, that we experience are, are temporary and finite in the sense that we commit physical crimes or we do, physically, we do wrong things in a physical sense. Therefore, we deserve a physical punishment, right? Which is finite, meaning it's amount of time. Or in the worst case scenario, it's your whole life, right? But it, it plays out that way. But the thing is, we haven't rebelled against a finite being. We've rebelled against an infinite being. We haven't we haven't sinned against someone else that's also bad. We've sinned against someone that's perfectly holy and righteous. Which means that our consequence has to be equal, which is also infinite. Again, to no ability on our own to be freed from it. So, so far we've seen in our story that we have been created by God, which is the first tremendous truth for us. But then secondly, we've been separated from God due to our own actions. Now fast forward to John chapter 19, verses 16 through 18. John 19, 16 through 18. I'm going to read them and then jump a little bit. It says, Then he handed him over to be crucified. He gave into their they're shouting. And prior to this, Jesus was flogged. He was mocked. He was handed over to be crucified. Then they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this passage because it's really not the main deal. 
Um, but they had been doing this for a long time at this point. In a lot of ways, this is basically the most torturous way they could come up with for killing somebody. Um, and Jesus had it worse because they hated him. He was beaten, flogged, spat on. Uh, he was given a crown of thorns. He was forced to carry his own cross. He was given lashing after lashing to the point of, to the point of almost death already before he even got on the cross. And then once he's on the cross, they would pierce the nails through the, the, the nerves in the wrists, one causing immense pain that shoots up and down both arms. Right? And you could get a little bit of relief from it if you just decide to let your weight hang on your, your legs instead. But what would happen is after time, his lungs would start filling up with blood and it got hard to breathe and so he couldn't just be sagged down. And so he'd have to lift himself up just to get gasps of breath, leaning on those, those puncture wounds with the nails in his wrist. And the thing is, it usually takes a long time. And we don't know the exact time. Um, but for many people, it would take days, um, but even if not hours. And so usually you die either from just sheer pain or suffocation because you're no longer strong enough to get yourself back up to take a breath. That's the physical punishment that Jesus went through. That's the physical uh, consequence he paid for us. But if you continue reading, just down a few verses, verses 28 through 30, because after this, after this, the crucifixion, um, he's, he's on the cross. When Jesus knew that everything was now finished, the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And here's the thing, is the reason I only spent a minute on the physical stuff, because we could honestly spend a whole, the science behind the pain that he endured, the physical pain that he endured. But the truth is, that was not even close to the worst part of what Jesus went through. Not even close. And the, and the reality is, is if that's all Jesus went through was the physical pain, I mean, people could go through that. I mean, there were two criminals crucified next to him. But Jesus didn't do something that other people could have done because remember, we separated ourselves from God so much so that we had no way back. And so he endured something that we couldn't endure, which wasn't physical suffering. It was the, the spiritual suffering. Jesus endured our ultimate consequence, which was the fullness of the Father's wrath poured out on him. You see, for us, that, that we couldn't bear it. And so that's why our consequence is an eternity of it, because we can never, it's never enough to overcome our sins. But for Christ, because he is God, and equal with God, and one with the Father, he endures the fullness of the wrath of God. As we're going to see in a few moments, he overcomes. Let me just pause for a moment and ask, why? 
Right? So he endures the physical suffering. He endures the spiritual suffering. But why? He does so because that's the consequence we deserved. When we separated ourselves from God, we were owed, we, we were due a, a, we owed a debt. We owed a consequence, but we couldn't pay it. And so Jesus pays it for us in enduring the, the physical wrath and spiritual wrath of the Father. And so that third scene in the story is that we've been redeemed by Christ. We've been redeemed by Christ. Ephesians 1.7 says this way, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, according to the riches of his grace, not to the we did really good things, not to the really great church attendance, not to the, not to the, 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 the I never cursed, right? Not to the, the I, I refrained from doing a few bad things, but to the riches of his grace. We have been redeemed. And think about redemption for a moment because it is, an, it is an incredible thing. But the reality is it's still not even the fullness of what Christ did. I think about how we use redeem sometimes. Uh, for, for example, again, I watched a little bit of the Masters this week and there were times, I remember a particular hole in uh, uh, day number two, Victor Hovland, who was kind of high up on the leaderboard. He, on the very first hole, he had a pretty good first shot, really bad second shot, couldn't recover, another bad third shot. And all of a sudden, he's got like 50 feet uh, for par, and he makes the putt. And the announcers say he redeemed himself with that putt, right? Or, or in basketball, if someone makes a mistake for their team, but they make up for it later, you'll say, oh, they redeemed themselves, right? And what they're really saying is that you've kind of got back to square one, right? Like you're kind of back to where you were, sort of. Um, and so if that's all that's happened, then left to our own devices, we're going to continue to, to fall short. We're going to continue to rebel and separate ourselves from God. But the story doesn't end there. It continues on. And we see in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, the following. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the womb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloth, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. And then verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white, standing where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, are you crying? Why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them. And I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around 
and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, Why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. Scene four. It's why we gather here today to celebrate Easter Sunday, to celebrate our risen King. That Jesus didn't just die on a cross. He didn't just endure the wrath of God on our behalf and, and, and make that payment for us. But he defeats death and raises to life. Church, that one truth literally changes everything. It affirms the divinity of Jesus. It affirms that, that, that not only have we been redeemed back to kind of our starting point or, or, or back to square one, but we've also been, been given the righteousness of what Jesus has done. So not only has he just taken away your, your sin and your, 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 the consequences of your, your, your actions and the, the eternity that you owe God in response to your sinful actions under the fullness of God's wrath, not only has he borne all that for you, has he, has he, he who knew no sin become sin on your behalf, on the cross, borne it for you, but he's also given you the righteous reward that he earned. And his raising from the grave is, again, the, 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 the ultimate, final, cemented, climactic moment in this story that gets stamped through for eternity. So he doesn't have to do it again. You don't have to respond to it more than once uh, in, in terms of with a whole life response. Um, but once you do, we then now have assurance that is true for us forever. And there's nothing, not only is there nothing we could have done to earn it, but now there's nothing we could do to lose it. One of my favorite quotes by an old, old school theologian, he says, when God has resolved to hold on to you, you're not even strong enough to depart from him. See, when Jesus rose from the grave, it literally changed everything. And what I want you to know this morning is that this story I hesitated to even use the term story um, because it, in my mind it kind of implied fictitious. Um, like it's not real, right? It's just a story, right? You're just telling stories, you know? We kind of use it that way. I actually looked up the Google definition of a story. <laughs> and it basically just says any telling of anything, right? It can be true or false, um, which I kind of think is fitting for the sermon title. And I say that because whether we claim it's true or not, I think sometimes we live as though it isn't. And so my hope for us this morning as we get ready to close and I'll invite the worship team to come back up as we get ready to respond with praise and worship because of this amazing news of what Christ has done for us is that we would understand its truth. 
first passage we read, remember Jesus said he came to testify about the truth. His word is truth. Pilate responds by asking, well, what is truth? Truth that Jesus rose from the grave. Church, that you don't have to live in fear and condemnation and and, and worry and pursuit of anything. And there's nothing better that you could pursue than Jesus than resting in him because of what he's done for you. And so we're going to end in with an invitation time, because the truth is the greatest story ever leads to the greatest invitation ever, which is simply acknowledging its truth for your life and submitting your life to it. Romans 10, 9. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the grave and you will be saved. Then down to verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the invitation this morning is threefold. First and foremost, if you're here this morning and you have, um, in whatever capacity, been going through the motions of life or pursuing different things and you've wondered why they don't last, right? maybe it's work, maybe it's an entertainment thing and you get kind of like little highs from it, but, but ultimately they just don't quite matter to the degree you want. Um, you're just searching for something and you've got this underlying sense of shame and, 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 and guilt that Scripture tells us that we know is there, Romans 1. Uh, if that's you and, and you know that you've not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the truths of, of His raising from the grave, defeating death, paying our penalty and giving us His righteous reward of righteousness, which is eternity with the Father in heaven, if you've never accepted that truth, let today be today. Let today be today. We say it all the time here. We quote the passage where it says, now is the day of salvation. And what we say is, that the reason it doesn't say today is the day of salvation is because we don't have that much time. We need to do it now. If that's you and you're, you're drowning, you don't want someone to throw you a life preserver today. You want throw, someone to throw you a life preserver now. And there's no greater life preserver than Christ and the implications that his resurrection have. So if that's you, I'm going to invite you to come forward. We're going to sing in a moment. I'm going to be at the front, and I would love to pray with you. Or if you have questions about what that means, we'd love to pray with you. But don't wait. Second invitation is for those of you who have accepted that truth. And it's to really just respond with the encouragement and the reminder that this story is all that we need. It is totally sufficient for your life. You don't need to grasp and add things. You don't need fancy new, you know, Bibles or things to, you just need this story. Just this story. There's no graduating to another level of the gospel. It's just continuing to rest in. And so if that's you, I want to invite you to continue resting in this truth. Continue celebrating this truth. Um, and then lastly, um, if you accepted this truth or you've just in your own heart accepted the first invitation to surrender your life to Jesus, we would love for you to be a part of our church family. If you don't have a church home, uh, the reality is, is we need to be reminded of this. 
because we get caught up in the things of this world and lose sight. And so we need people to encourage us to, to keep our eyes fixated on Jesus. And if you don't have a church community, church family, man, we would love to be that with you. We're not perfect. And our guitar strings break. Um, but we would love to do life with you. And so if any of those, really all of those, should hit somebody in here. Um, but we're going to take a moment to, to respond with worship. And during that time, if you feel a call to respond, please come forward. Love to pray with you. The altar is also open if you'd like to pray alone. Um, let's pray and let's respond together.